would. At CD Media, we've decided never to have a paywall on any of our sites. I hate those. But we have to make money, so we do have advertisements. But some people don't like ads. So what can you do? You can sign up for our no-ad subscription. It's a few bucks a month. You go to the top of any of our sites and sign up for the subscription, and you get access to all of our websites, all of the news from around the world. This includes our Eastern European, Israeli, Balkan sites. It includes armedforces.press. It includes all the U.S. papers that we've opened, the Miami Independent, the Connecticut Sentinel, the Georgia Record, the Manhattan.press, and the, those that are yet to come in the pipeline, which will be opening soon. So you get all this access to fantastic news from around the world with no ads, no display ads, no pop-up ads. I think you'll love it. Please check us out. It helps support CD media, independent media, and basically confronting the propaganda that's being put out by the corporate media. Thank you. Now let's get to our guest. Welcome, everybody. I'm Christine Dolan. I'm the host of the Global Conversation in Plain Sight. And today we are delighted to have with us Dr. Pierre Corey, Dr. Merrill Nass, to talk about everything ivermectin, the truth about ivermectin. And the reason why we're doing this now is because a suit, a lawsuit was filed in the federal court in Texas in June on behalf of three doctors whose uh, careers were harmed who had given ivermectin to their clients and were denied giving ivermectin to the clients in the hospitals. And so um, as a result of the lawsuit, there have been some hearings. There was a motion to, the, the complaint was filed. There was a motion to dismiss. It was filed against um, Dr. Fauci, uh, HHS, uh, the head of HHS, the head of uh, FDA, I'm sorry, not Dr. Fauci. And there was a hearing on the motion to dismiss. And the lawyer, a gentleman named Isaac Belfer, who works for the Department of Justice representing the FDA, said in pleadings before they got to the motion to dismiss hearing, and also in the hearing itself on November 1st, that all of the communications that the FDA put out there, whether they were in Twitter, whether they were on their sites, whether they were in papers or postings that they put on their site, that the directions not to use ivermectin were not mandatory. Now, nine or eight, seven billion people uh, on the planet witnessed their communications. And as a result, there was a pushback against ivermectin. We know that here in the United States, ivermectin was very hard to find at the pharmacies, uh, that pharma pharmacies asked doctors why they were um, writing out the prescriptions for ivermectin, and there was a complete blowback. So we have two doctors with us today. Uh, Pierre and Merle, welcome to the show, first of all. Thanks, Christine. And so we're going to talk about the history of this. Now, I knew of ivermectin before COVID because I ride horses and I've been all over Africa. So I know that ivermectin was very successful in preventing river blindness because it's used for parasites. And in Africa, if you go into rivers and you don't have shoes on, uh, it can get into your feet and get into your blood and it can cause river what they call river blind blindness. And it's also used uh, for horses and for other livestock for um, parasites. So uh, this, was, this was sort of, um, I, I didn't realize that it had been used you know, in humans before then um, other than for river blindness. But let's, Merle, let's start with you because um, let's talk about how long this has been on the market. Let's give context, historical context to this so we can bring this forward. Um, if my memory serves, this uh, avermectin was discovered as a product made by soil bacteria in Japan in the 1970s. And um, Merck, uh, the, the person who discovered it, um, worked for Merck along with um, 
uh, an American, and they developed it uh, and found that the best um, the best similar product they named ivermectin instead of avermectin, mm -hmm. and it was licensed for humans in the 1980s and has been used for a variety of things, including primarily um, parasitic diseases, but also for other things. I just went through the 216 clinicaltrials.gov studies listed um, where clinical trials have registered in the US uh, clinical trials being done all over the world, and I found it's been tried for all sorts of things, including breast cancer right now. Um, so a very interesting drug with many different mechanisms of action, uh, including alcohol use disorder, it's being tried in. So um, dengue, other viruses like dengue, um, Anyway, uh, it's a very interesting drug and I've used it in hundreds of patients with um, COVID and it seems to be highly effective. No, it's, you know, this is a viral illness. Usually one drug isn't enough, um, but it is for a virus which don't respond as well as bacteria do to antibiotics. It's highly effective. And Pierre, you, when you testified before the Senate, uh, you know, that, that's when you caught my attention because you were, you know, really out there in front and, and basically saying, and this was December of 2020, as I recollect, and you, you came out of the box because you, you were talking about, you know, there needs to be an early, early treatments for COVID. So explain, explain how that came, how that event came about. Yeah. So we, you know, the FLCCC, my organization with Paul Merrick, we were studying therapeutics from the beginning. We'd put out a hospital protocol in the spring using medicines that we knew were effective in the critical phase of this disease in the ICU. And we were waiting on trials and we're talking to doctors, treat, you know, providers all around the world. And I would say September, October of 2020 is when the first kind of clinical trials were being completed on a number of therapeutics. Most of them were failing. Some of them were corrupt, like hydroxychloroquine randomized controlled trials. We know that whole story. Um, but everything was prov proving to be kind of unimpressive and not working. Ivermectin stood out. We just kept getting, we were drowning in reports and studies from all around the world, going up on preprint servers, some of them being published in smaller journals, but it was consistent, remarkable, large magnitude impacts. And at the time of my testimony, if I recall, we had 32 controlled trials, 12 or 15 of them were randomized, um, several thousands of patients. I mean, the evidence base back then was overwhelming. And now, you know, Christine, I, I, I try not to, not I try not to, I don't even talk about the data anymore because the data is overwhelming. I've never seen a more proven effective medicine in any disease model. As of today, there's 93 controlled trials, including 125,000 patients. That's 93 controlled trials, and 46 of them are randomized controlled trials. Each and every one, they're not always statistically significant, but when you combine them, which is what you're supposed to do when you have collections of trials, you have overwhelming, large, statistically significant impacts, not only in treatment, but in prevention. And yet the world uh, continues to be influenced by, I would say, five or less randomized controlled trials published in the high-impact journals. And that's the only thing that drives headlines and drives the agencies. And they point to those trials, which have immense evidence of manipulation and fraud in their design and conduct. Um, and, and that's the state where we are today, is that the evidence for ivermectin is overwhelming, but the evidence that's being used by uh, those in power um, has been corrupted and it's tiny. Um, but yet they carry the day on, on this drug. And, and so to your point, you know, based on the behavior of these agencies and authorities, including the WHO, um, you know, you have this mass impression, right, through the use of this kind of propaganda, that most system, most, most doctors in advanced health economies around the world truly believe that it's ineffective, that it's a horse dewormer, that only the unvaxxed, uncredible would think of using it. And the truth is, is the actually the opposite. And, you know, the FDA, you know, in order to understand the FDA's behaviors, obviously we have to call out regulatory capture, right, which is the control of a regulatory agencies by really those they serve, which is the pharmaceutical industry. And so when you look at the actions and statements, 
you have to understand that all of those actions are done in the service of pharmaceutical industry interests. And it's their direct interest to not have ivermectin approved because if ivermectin was shown effective, it would really threaten the market for vaccines as well as the other pricey, uh, you know, new pipeline drugs like Paxlovid and Molnupiravir. And so, you know, the FDA jumped in on it. You know, they, they work for their masters and they went in with that ridiculous tweet. Um, and, and so I, I'll finish there, Christine, because go back to this court case, which is I, I don't know if the chickens are coming home to roost here. I think this court case is important. Um, I, you can see the FDA is on the defensive. They're starting to backtrack saying, oh, it was just a sort of informal recommendation. And, you know, listen, Merrill knows this. I know this. When I, when, you know, I was getting, I was able to fill prescriptions at retail pharmacies for a time in the pandemic, but right around that time when the FDA jumped in, the CDC uh, sent out their bulletin saying that it's a dangerous drug and overdoses are on the rise, which was based on, on actually false data and a misrepresentation of how many poisonings there were. After that, you know, I repeatedly had pharmacists tell me, I will not fill this. The FDA hasn't approved it. And, and right there is the central lie, right, Christine? The FDA has no business getting involved in the practice of medicine. That's not their job. That's not their role. Their role is to approve safe drugs and interventions. And after that, that's it. It's an FDA-approved drug. We don't need them to approve it for ivermectin, for, for COVID. Right, because it was already approved. It's considered what it's called in the industry off the shelf. But before we get into the lawsuits, lost the effect, the ramifications of the lawsuit, win or lose it, let's get back to a little bit more of the history. Pierre, during the beginning um, of you and Paul, uh, Dr. Merrick, had attended a conference. I think it was in Europe at the time. There was a speaker there named Andy Hill, uh, who was, uh, lives in England. And talk about that. You were out of the room. He got up there. He he said something in his presentations. He looked positively at ivermectin, and then he took a deep dive. Explain how you got to meet him. And at that point in time, you you knew it was it was effective. Yep. He was doing a study on that. Give us give the part yeah yeah. So that's an important part of this whole thing. So I'm going to start with what something that Merrill said. Right. So. Not only does ivermectin have anti-tumor, anti-even bacterial, anti-parasitic properties, but when we started to study it, I didn't know that there, there was 10 years of in vitro studies showing that it stopped the replication of about 10 to 12 different RNA viruses like SARS-CoV-2. Translate that for the public, the importance of that. Yeah, yeah that, it's, that it literally stops the replication of RNA viruses. Um, and this is in vitro. We don't have huge clinical data for that, but it showed a really strong mechanism that it, it could have a role in stopping the replication and or, you know, obviously the, the severity of the disease. And certainly that that actually panned out. I mean, it's a drug that jumped from the bench to the bedside, as we say. I mean, its efficacy in the test tube was seen at the bedside. And so after my testimony, I was invited to give a lecture at a conference put on by a French biotech company that was developing a long acting form of ivermectin in, in, in order to prophylax against malaria in Africa. So it'd be like an injectable that could work for months. And so um, this company was really interested in ivermectin. They, they even thought their product could even potentially be used in COVID. And so they wanted, they brought together researchers. I presented. And on the third day of the conference, uh, the guy that you said, Dr. Andrew Hill, he gave this presentation and Paul and I were shocked because he introduced himself as from literally from Unitaid and the World Health Organization. And he had all of these randomized controlled trials compiled, com compiled. And the evidence was similarly overwhelming as all the evidence that I use. I use much more than randomized controlled trials. I use ministry reports, observational trials, you know, the totality of the evidence. But just his alone was remarkable. I reached out to him and we started to develop sort of a collegial relationship. And we were both completely impressed by this data. And I discovered that what his job was is that he was the lead researcher of a team assigned by Unitaid under what's called the ACT Accelerator Program, which was this program collaboration between the WHO and Unitaid, largely run, staffed and run by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So they, they, they put together a team in June of 2020 with the sole uh, mission of looking at repurposed drugs or generic drugs, right? Things that have already improved or in use. And they started to look at about five or six and they spent the whole summer and fall doing that. When I talked to Andy, and I'll always remember this. What was I, the time, what was yeah. the time frame that you first talked to Andy? 
December 16th, 2020, about a week after my testimony, mm -hmm. um, I was invited to start giving lectures all over the world. And this was one of them. And so when we were talking, one of our first conversations, I said, how did you get interested in ivermectin? And he said to me, oh, a professor at my university told me to look at it in November. What's interesting is we posted our preprint draft of our review paper on November 13th, 2020. Mm -hmm. So here he says that he's told to look into it in November. And I have to say, it is, I maintain, I don't have evidence for this, but I think that pre, they, they're, listen, pharma watches preprint service, especially in COVID. They saw mine pop up and they got someone on it. Now, here's the real catch to and, and let me interrupt for a second, Pierre. And the reason for that at that point in time in 2020 is because the Emergency Use Act was invoked in countries all over the world. And the significance of finding an alternative would diminish the value and possibly nuke the use of the Emergency Use Act if there was an alternative medicine. The, the EUA, you're absolutely right. So the, we were about to embark on a global vaccination campaign at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. Those, those um, vaccines were about to be launched and they were predicated on the fact that you can't authorize, you can't give an emergency use authorization if there's an effective alternative treatment for the disease. And now I have to mention, though, Christine, that's if they play by the rules. You know that they write the rules, they play by the. I mean, yes, they rewrite the rules as they go along if they yeah. want to make vax the only answer and then not create right. any vax hesitancy right. out so, there in the public domain. Yeah. So the the way the rules are written, yes, it would seem that they wouldn't be able to do that. I think they can do whatever they want, but yes, it was a potential threat because if you had a worldwide recommendation. What it would really do is I don't think it would stymie them from rules, but it would fuel their enemy, which is vaccine hesitancy, because mm -hmm. the studies on prevention were profound and treatment. And so you would have huge portions of the globe would say, why would I take some experimental vaccine with an unproven technology when I have a safe decades old drug? Right. So right. ivermectin was a huge threat. And, you know. So they got Andy to look at it. What's really interesting, and this is my personal um, impression of everything that happened around Andrew Hill, is I do not believe that Andy Hill, when he was doing that work initially, I do not believe that he knew that the whole purpose of his research team was to identify generic drugs so that his sponsors could then use disinformation to destroy the evidence. He, he was true blue. I know he was. I talked to him many times. We shared data. We were excited about the trials data. I mean, he was really um, as excited as anyone else. He gave public lectures to South Africa saying, get supplies, get ready. You know, this, you know, we have to, you know, prepare ourselves for other waves in the pandemic. So the problem is after that lecture, Christine, he was muzzled. Because I asked him, I said, there's a New York Times reporter. This is a week after his last public lecture. And I said, the New York Times wants to talk to you. Would you do an interview with them? And he said, no, I can't. I was asked by my sponsors to no longer speak publicly. And further, he also told me in that same conversation that he could no longer share the data that he was compiling on all these emerging trials with me and Paul. And so that was the first kind of sense that something was wrong. And I don't know how much you want me to go into this detail, but what happens over the next year is he published, he finished his contract with Unitate and he was independent. After April of 2020, he finished. And he April ended up 2020 or April 2021? Uh, 2021, I'm sorry. He ended up um, being independent at the time. And um, a huge nonprofit, which was helping fund research, um, a philanthropy organization called the Rainwater Foundation, actually gave him a grant to finish and publish the meta-analysis of all the trials he had compiled while he was working for Unitate. So independently, he published this astoundingly positive meta-analysis in a journal called the, uh, Clinical Infectious Disease. Now, it didn't make huge waves because the media is controlled against ivermectin, but it was an immensely powerful paper showing all of this data that it decreased the time of clinical recovery, it decreased uh, hospitalizations and deaths, um, it had a dose responsiveness, meaning the higher the dose you got, the quicker you got better and the less hospitalizations and deaths. I mean, it's a truly astounding paper. The problem is, after the publication of, of that paper, 
the whole bunch of stuff started to happen. And the probably the, the biggest one is these all these narratives were being circulated against ivermectin. Everybody in the media and in the agencies and in academia were trying to dismiss this evidence using the same messages. Low quality, small trials, can't be trusted. Then they were able to do this new narrative, and it was a huge thing that happened. But the sequence of events, one of the papers, one of the large randomized control trials in this huge collection of trials was purportedly accused of being a fraud and completely made up. Now, there's no definitive proof that that's true. The way in which they supposedly found the database that was altered or you know manipulated um, is really unclear. It's not a really positive story. And the, the researcher of that trial he very quickly went quiet. There was no real public defense. He just sort of went underground. I talked to him because I knew the guy. He had presented at the same conference that I had met Andy Hill at. And I said to him, his name was Dr. Elgazar. I said, <clears throat> I said what's going on here? What, what, what happened with your trial? And he said, that was not my original data that was being circulated around the world. He said, that's not my database. He said, this is, you know, he basically said he was under attack. And I said, well, why don't you come out and show us your real data and defend yourself? He mm -hmm. did not. Again, this is a hypothesis. Christine, I don't have any evidence for this, but I believe they got that guy to be quiet and allow his paper to be purportedly fraudulent. And by, by inventing a narrative that the studies were fraudulent, it allowed them to really cast out. Because remember, disinformation is based on a simple strategy of injecting doubt where mm -hmm. there is none. So right. you can take a piece of that pile of evidence and say, ah, that's fraudulent. That means the others must be. And that was the new narrative. And you know what? After that trial, what we did is myself, Tess Laurie, because she had also published a review paper, and Andy Hill, the three of us revised our papers. We took out that one trial, and then we republished the results. It did not affect the conclusion. It might have lessened the magnitude of benefit, but the conclusions were the same. Andy did something completely different than what we did. Andy self-retracted his paper, redid his analysis in a completely novel way. He started to categorize all the studies in his paper as uh, low risk of bias, some concerns, potentially fraudulent, and then high risk of bias. These are invented categories. I've never heard of what some concerns are. And then he kept only this tiny collection of what he deemed were the high quality trials. And he said that there was no evidence of a mortality benefit. And that's what he republished. And after that time point, his new publication, and from then on, he started publishing papers basically saying that the evidence for ivermectin is misleading and fraudulent. Christine, they got to him. They right. got them. That's a guy whose whole career is, is on funding from huge international organizations, which now Bill Gates literally runs all of them, right? It's his money that's fueling all of these public health organizations. He knew his career is done unless he starts doing what they want. And that's that's my take on Andy Hill. Merle, let me bring you back in here. Um, so you're, you're friends with Tess Laurie. You've been at several conferences in Europe with her uh, as well. And, you know, there, there's a very interesting video that's out there uh, between Tess Laurie and Andy Hill, basically encouraging, you know, asking, Tess is asking Andy in the video, why are you doing what you're doing and who's pressuring you and who are the people that are pressuring? So, you know, he, he admitted that he was pressured at the time not to do what he had earlier said and represented publicly that he found in his studies, which was extraordinary. You helped Bobby Kennedy for the real Anthony Fauci in which he writes about ivermectin. What were you finding around the same time uh, out there in the public domain about holding back ivermectin from the, from the public, from doctors, you know, scaring the hell out of the pharmacists? Okay, I wanna say a lot of different things. Um, so yes, Tess, um, Took, copied. She made a recording of her conversation with Andrew Hill in which he basically admitted he was being pressured to change his conclusions. And other people have studied what happened then, including Phil Harper and I think Alexandros Marinos, um, who's also looked deeply into the TOGETHER trial. 
And um, Phil Harper found that another person who uh, is senior to Andrew Hill named Andrew Owen probably wrote the conclusions of the paper later after he'd presented at the conference with Pierre Corey. Was, was, was he the, the, the person that was immediately above him at the university where the study was? Being yes, done? he was the same professor that Andy told me. <clears throat> okay. Um, and there was another a woman too who was involved who isn't named. So that's what went on with Andrew Hill and he changed his conclusions and he's basically gone silent. Now it should be important to note that the same funders of his, of his study, and by the way, his, the university he was working at, the University of Liverpool got forty million a forty million dollar grant right after that from Unitate. Yes, okay, from and, then, and and Bill Gates is one of the funders of Unitate. Yes. Okay, and now we've recently dealt with this huge together trial which has also more recently tried to sink the ivermectin story. And that's a trial that is so fraudulent, you can't even begin to talk about all the different ways it was faked. But who were when the funders? Explain for the public, uh, Merle, when did that trial, what, when did that surface? So um, about eight months ago, we were hearing press releases that ivermectin wasn't working, but it was only... Uh, two or three months ago, that actually the data were released from that trial so that people could examine it carefully. Um, the funders included Unitaid, the Rainwater Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the Corker, the FTX Foundation. Sam Bankman Fried um, gave that study money as well. And as we know, he was basically a money laundering operation. Um, I won't go into it because you need to read the, the very detailed critiques of these two, Alexandros Marinos and Phil Harper, to understand what went on with these trials. And we will, we will actually, we will post that on um, the lengthy piece that I'm doing. I'm going to include that in there. Go on. Great. Okay. Uh, but actually, the system, the bad guys and the FDA knew all about ivermectin's effectiveness for covid at the beginning of the pandemic. And a lot of people miss that. So um, Medincel was a company that Pierre mentioned that sponsored the conference he went to um, later in, in December of 2020. But Medincel had sponsored researchers in Melbourne, Australia to study a long acting form of ivermectin for COVID. And they published um, in April of 2020 and, and was, it, was it positive at that point in yes. time? Yes, it was. April of 2020. And, and where, then, was it, where was it published, Merle? Um, well, first they published sort of a preprint or a press release, but soon after a paper got published as well. I don't remember the journal. It, it was an in vitro study, but it was markedly positive. It was, I believe it was in virology. Okay, the Journal and, of Virology. All right. right. And so, and at the same time, in the beginning of April of 2020, the FDA issued their first website that said, you know, this is horse medicine. You know, y'all don't use it. Um, stop it now. And the FDA actually made uh, one or two newer versions of that website, I think, to protect themselves from legal actions potentially. So there, there have been a few, but. Um, people forget that the FDA knew, Medincel knew, and some people were in the know, and there was a rush on animal ivermectin at that point early. And there were people getting human prescriptions for it also. But it sort of faded away, um, possibly because of the FDA website and the FDA's work to suppress the use of the drug. Because at the same time, the FDA was using different methods to suppress hydroxychloroquine. So they knew what they were doing. And then, you know, but clinical evidence accumulated all throughout 2020. And then Pierre was able to make a statement. And I heard Andrew Hill also give a talk uh, around November, December of 2020 saying, boy, you know, we don't have quite enough evidence, but it's awfully, you know, positive for ivermectin and people should be, you know, watching this drug. So, um, you know, people knew and again, the federal government was suppressing it. And 
we didn't know at the time why they were suppressing ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. But I think looking back, looking at how, to what extent they are pushing these vaccines, even though they don't work and they're killing some people and causing a lot of damage, a lot of morbidity, um, I think we have to say that most likely the re well, they wanted to prolong the pandemic, so that, that also happened, but they definitely wanted to be able to push these vaccines, and under the um, PrEP Act, you can't have a licensed drug that can work, and you see ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine have such a long half-life, you can use them preventively, prophylactically, like a vaccine, as well as for treatment. All right. So, so if, if you build the timeline, like a criminal matrix here, that um, all these studies are going along uh, and some people are being paid off or some people are being paid to study and to suppress the positiveness of ivermectin in 2020 going into 2021. We know that the U.S. pharmaceutical companies uh, under the Emergency Use Act we're already contracting with DOD uh, and the U.S. government uh, in 2020 for the vaccines. We know in the spring of 2020 that Fauci uh, came out and it was by May, June, when my lights went on as a journalist, Vax was the only answer. And I knew that people who were looking to create something and get money from BARDA, our U.S. government, you know, ATM, agency, um, and I say that, you know, flippantly, uh, they weren't getting the money to, to, for what they wanted to do to, re, to reduce the viral load. This is separate from the off-the-shelf ivermectin hydroxychloroquine notions. So it makes sense, logically, just common sense, that if you want to suppress something so you can have Vax as the only answer to create the market so that this is, you know, goes on and becomes uh, mandatory force coerced shots, that would be the business model to do at the time and discredit everybody else. Let's get into what you two as doctors and um, who, even though you're deep into the scientific research, you actually take care of patients. So Pierre, yeah, what happened to you? And Merle will go to you next. Just professionally, in terms of wanting to give early treatments, yep. and, and and tell the story because this is what people need to know. They need to know how it was set up, how it was created to be disinformation, why it was created to be disinformation, and what happened to the doctors that wanted to use it who knew that it worked. Yeah, I mean, it, it basically became a war, but. Let's go to my first patient that I treated. So I had posted my preprint November 13th of 2020. Um, I had not treated anyone yet when I posted that preprint with ivermectin. I mean, I was an ICU doctor. Most of my COVID patients were, you know, obviously in the hospital or ICU. I had, had a huge network of colleagues and friends. And within days of that preprint, we got a an email from the CEO of a medical staffing company. She was in her 50s. And she ended up, I ended up calling her because she just thanked me for the paper and she told me her clinical vignette of what happened to her. She was ill for two weeks with COVID, fevers persistently for two weeks. She was in her, in her bed. She had a resting heart rate of 120. And she told me that she took my paper to her pulmonologist who agreed, prescribed her ivermectin. She took it on a Sunday night and she said she felt very flushed like within an hour. She went to bed and in the morning she had no fever and her heart rate was 80. And this is after two weeks straight of being ill. And that was the first clinical report I'd had that I was personally somewhat involved with. I started treating patients. And I would say during that first strain in 2020, uh, into probably midway through 2021, ivermectin alone, I, I like Merrill's point because it's true, you generally need combination therapy. And our protocols always did have them, but I found patients would dramatically respond to ivermectin alone. And time after time, all the patients would say within 12 to 24 hours, some important symptom was mitigated or resolved, like the chest tightness or stuffiness or headache or fever. They would be like, wow, I feel better. Now that changed with later variants, with higher viral loads, more transmissible. I found that ivermectin still important and effective. It definitely needed more help in other combinations. But I was treating, you know, aggressively hundreds of patients throughout 2021. But then 
And I was trying to think of this timeline. You know, I saw Merrill did a piece on kind of what's happened to her, and she published it in um, in the Defender. And I will tell you, the first um, thing that happened to me was uh, a complaint went into my medical board, um, two or three complaints around the same time, all from doctors and pharmacists, nothing from a patient. And they would say that I was spreading in misinformation online by advocating for the use of ivermectin. And that uh, one, one phrase I really remember was that I bring disrepute to the physicians of Wisconsin, and therefore I should have my license revoked. Um, and that kept going. I think I'm up to 11 complaints. Now, none of those complaints have, um, I responded to all of them with a lawyer, uh, with data, with evidence. I reminded the board that I'm actually one of the world experts on the clinical use of COVID. So you want to tell me I'm misinformationist? I've spent hundreds of hours researching the drug and publishing papers. They have not responded yet. I think Merrill's, Merrill's case is really singular and different. Um, but aside from the medical board complaints and then the resistance from the pharmacies, because remember when the CDC and FDA, it was very synchronized. You know, that, that FDA tweet and, and when CDC sent out their memo, it was almost uh, a year plus more than when they did the same move against hydroxychloroquine. They, did, they, they just rinsed, repeated the same actions against ivermectin. But they also sent those memos to all the boards of pharmacy. So suddenly, like, I'm getting flack at the medical board level. I can't prescribe ivermectin to my patients through retail pharmacies. Um, and then st things started to happen to our jobs. Like, after my uh, testimony, um, my job did not want me to speak in public anymore. And they offered me a new contract. They didn't fire me, but they said, we're offering you a new contract. And the new contract had all these restrictions on my First Amendment rights, which is they're allowed to do. And But I said, no, thank you. So I lost another job. Um, and then later on, I was fired from my third job with a, just a trumped up chart. I mean, they just made up something. And they said, this is what you did. And we don't want you working here anymore. I was an independent contractor at the time. So I ended up losing jobs. Paul's career ended. You know, his hospital went after him because he was a public figure advocating for science, which went against the narrative. And, and, you know, and that's been described for decades in science, right? When you have an opinion that de departs from consensus, they will seek out and destroy you. And I'm still standing. I'm licensed. I'm now in private practice. I don't take insurance. And I'm, I'm really happy with what I do. I focus on the treatment of long-haul COVID and vaccine injured, and I still treat acute COVID. And I'm, I'm okay for now. But again, my medical board has not um, come up with a decision on me yet. Um, so we'll see what happens. Merle, you took the bricks with the medical board up in Maine. Um, you, they have put you through the ringer up there because you did prescribe ivermectin to your to your uh, clients. Tell us what happened to you. So um, the same kinds of charges were leveled at me as were leveled at Pierre: misinformation, um, you know, bringing disrepute to the profession, etc. Um, what I learned. I learned a few things recently. One is that the Federation of State Medical Boards, um, you know, issued guidelines. Pardon for me for interrupting, which yeah, oversees, like, it's like a trade association that oversees yes. the state medical boards. So Pierre got it doesn't oversee uh, them, but, well, but it's, it's, it's a nonprofit that gives them advice, training, policies, lobbies for them. It's, it's a, a trade association yes. for the met for each of the state medical boards. So to me, they oversee them because the medical boards actually operate their policies to go after doctors. Right. But it's not a regulatory agency, whereas no, the medical not. boards are regulatory agencies, um, you know, with the power to give doctors licenses, take their licenses away or to impose other discipline on them. So they initially went after misinformation and disinformation in mid-2021, which is exactly the same time as the CDC put out um, a, a warning through all its emergency networks that um, ivermectin is harming people. And there were 88,000 prescriptions written in a week in August of 2021. And this is something we have to worry about. And they only gave two examples in a four-page emergency warning, one somebody who got ivermectin over the internet, and the other somebody who bought an animal product and didn't dose themselves correctly. 
and neither person died. But on the basis of these two non-prescription uses, um, basically the CDC shut down the legal prescribing of ivermectin, warned all the pharmacists and the doctors, if you dispense or prescribe this medication, we will investigate you and you could lose your license. Everybody oh. knew that, but the FDA and CDC were very careful not to write it down. Okay. Except for here's, and here's the kicker for every lawyer that's out there that's listening to this interview, that when the FDA denounces and says, oh, we didn't make it mandatory on, in our tweets, on our pages or anything like that, the fact that they put it out there, what are the ramifications going down there so that if the CDC puts out this notice to everybody, if the pharmacists respond to it and shut it down and don't write anything, that hooks the FDA for putting that out there because the FDA is the, is the entity that gives the protocols to the CDC who publish those protocols across the board to the hospitals, to the pharmacists, and to everybody else. That's very important for people to understand how the game is played because it's not just what the FDA put out there. It's what everybody else in their industry thought that the FDA said in that tweet, even though they said it wasn't mandatory. Yeah, Christine, can I say one thing about that? It's yeah, there's another nuance to it, but I think your point is that they know the authority and influence they have when they put out any proclamation, whether it's whether it's casual, conversational, informal, or whatever they want to pretend it is now. Mm -hmm. They have immense influence on how people leave. Doctors are rule followers. And when there's a seeming a thing that looks like a rule that comes out, which is you shall not use, it is dangerous. And doctors are also scared of, of, of doing malpractice, right? I mean, there's a lot of other influences on doctors, but they know they can scare a doctor away from doing something. Um, but, you know, th there's three parties, right? So there's CDC, NIH, and FDA. You know, the CDC, in their memo, they, these guys clearly state repeatedly, the FDA has not approved or authorized ivermectin for covid which we know it's it's not a, a lie it's a misleading mistruth i mean it's it's clearly intended to mislead people into thinking that they can't use it unless the fda approves it most okay. people aren't aware of the off-label thing i mean some do but it's clearly meant to influence now the nih is the one that is in charge of the treatment guidelines right and that's what most of the hospitals look for the NIH is also a third party in this. And I was involved with the NIH. Um, I, I know what they did. You know, we got them to change their recommendation briefly for a time. Um, but they, they are also responsible for really trying to ignore the evidence of ivermectin, misrepresenting the evidence of ivermectin, and taking great care to not offer even a weak recommendation and support. You're talking about one of the safest medicines in history with a global pandemic with hundreds of thousands of people dying. And all of the evidence... Even if you want to say it's low quality, small, whatever, mm -hmm. all the evidence showing that it works. I mean, you can't, they have multiple recommendations that they can do. They can offer conditional, weak, moderate, and strong. They took great care to not offer even a weak recommendation. Had they done that, Christine, the entire country would have suddenly started using ivermectin against COVID. So, Merle, let's go back to, to where, where I interrupted you, and my apologies for that. But this was so August 2021. They're 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 taking it off the market at that point in time, making it. Yeah. it well, they're they're scaring the hell out of the, everybody right. trying to get it. Right. Exactly. Now, um, you know, something I just thought of might be important for Paul Merrick's case is the fact that the FDA also used a different misleading strategy on hydroxychloroquine. So what they did was they issued an EUA in March and then withdrew the EUA in June for hydroxychloroquine, made a big deal about it both times and implied and got almost everybody. I mean, even Jane Orient didn't understand what had happened. Um, made everybody think that it applied to all hydroxychloroquine on the mark in the marketplace mm -hmm. that was but it didn't it had nothing to do with the hydroxychloroquine you buy at a drugstore it only applied to some donated medicine that peter navarro trump's trade uh, person had gotten donated from a, about half a dozen manufacturers some of which was um, expired some of it was not 
possible to, to make it an approved product because of its manufacturing issues. Some of it came from Pakistan and other countries. But anyway, the federal government somehow got 50 to 100 million pills of hydroxychloroquine donated. And because this, the FDA, in conjunction with the head of BARDA at that time, Rick Bright, issued this EUA, which it didn't need to issue, um, and then withdrew it, they made everybody think you couldn't use hydroxychloroquine. And that wasn't true. Now, the only people who understood what was going on were the compounding pharmacists. Mm -hmm. So the compounding pharmacists who have had to really follow the law carefully, so because their licenses have been threatened in the past, they continued to dispense ivermectin. You can't, you can't, there's no compounded hydroxychloroquine that I'm aware of, but there is, but they could buy a powder of ivermectin and create capsules or produce it in other ways. And so they continued to do so. And then the FDA started to go after the compounding pharmacies in a letter that FDA sent, oddly enough, to the Federation of State Medical Boards which is get your people working on the compounding pharmacies and have and try to get them to stop, you know. So it's, it's, it sounds as if um, similar to getting people to, what she just said is really important, Merle, because it, it, it just hit a light bulb with me. <clears throat> How do you get people to get vaccinated? You coerce them, you force them, they lose their jobs. They can't get access. They can't go certain places. They can't get on a plane. They can't get into a certain country. And to get them to not use ivermectin, there's a parallel here in terms of a PR strategy campaign of scare the hell out of people if they, in fact, prescribed ivermectin or don't make it available, stock, take it off the market, stockpile it someplace. But it's, a, it's, a, it's the same coercion fear for practicing medicine. Right. And you see, this was the only way the federal agencies could, could suppress these medications because hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are both fully licensed. They've been proven to be safe and effective. So they can't just take them off the market. They, they had to find some other underhanded way to do it. And I mentioned Rick Bright because in his um, deposition, <laughs> a whistleblower, he left his job and he gave a deposition and he explained what he did, that he and Janet Woodcock, who was the head of, of the drug division at FDA and later was the acting director of FDA, had cooked up this plan to issue an EUA to suppress the use of hydroxychloroquine. I mean, he admits it and he admits it in a, in a movie also. So um, yeah, you know, federal agencies basically were sending coded messages to doctors and pharmacies, didn't want to put it in writing because they're afraid of a lawsuit, just like Paul Merrick's lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, were thinking they could get away with it. Meryl, I, I, I gotta tell you, I try not to say federal agencies anymore. Those are representatives of the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, that's what they do. I and mean, explain explain the financial relationship, Pierre, for those people who do not understand how much money Pharma puts into the FDA for yeah. quote unquote clinical trials. It's basically the ATM for. Well, right. the well, there's a couple of different influences financially. The 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 one that's plain is that um, they essentially work for Pharma, right? Because Pharma's trying to approve all these drugs and interventions and their new inventions. And the FDA is in charge of evaluating and approving that, right? And those fees charged to pharma fund a large part of the FDA. So that's one problem. I think the much bigger problem is that um, the leaders of those agencies, generally, there's a big revolving door. So people know when you're in there, if your behavior is in the service of the pharmaceutical industry, you can be assured that when you leave that agency, you will have a golden parachute. You will get a job at a high level as a vice president at any number of these pharmaceuticals. They reward their own. That's number one. So you know that you have a big ticket waiting for you. And then they also come back in. You know, the FDA will hire people out of pharma to have leadership and director positions. And so it, it's really, I mean, you can't survive in the FDA with 
objectivity, um, integrity, you, you don't get put on committees unless you're a yes man or woman. I mean, if you look at the preordained approvals of all of these ridiculous COVID vaccines for children as young as six months old, we know those are approved before the committee sits down. They already have the votes in those seats. And so there's anyone at the, that rises to any level towards leadership of the FDA is in the service of pharma. Now, I want to be careful. It doesn't mean that every employee of those agencies is right. corrupted or compromised. Those that don't have a voice, I think many of them are committed to public health and to really furthering the science and really to helping the population. But they control the tops of those agencies. And and those, to me, are the influences. I mean, there's just so much money. And, and then you could talk about the lobbying influences, right? So it's it's the biggest lobby on Capitol Hill. It is actually the most wealthy industry in the entire world. It dwarfs coal and gas. You're talking about immense financial influences all over government. It, it competes with tourism and they shut that down, didn't they, during COVID? Yep. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, getting back to this statement that Isaac Belfer, I want to make him famous now. I'm infamous. <laughs> okay. I've, Isaac Bel Belfer had the audacity to say in court, oh, no, this was just conversational, um, you know, FDA websites, pages, tweets, you know, no, nobody, we, we, the intention was not to make it mandatory. But here's the kicker legally. Just like with sexual harassment, just like with, with uh, discrimination because of color, sex, religion, et cetera, it's not necessarily what somebody says, it's how it's received. Mm. It's how it's received legally, all right? So... I think that it is fair to say that 7 billion people got the message correctly that you should not use ivermectin, that it will kill you. CNN, one of my alma mater uh, networks, the, the, they said all over the play, all over the network, that ivermectin was, was a horse drug, which was partly true, but they missed the river blindness, even though they used to have a CNN Africa station as part of part of their uh, network at one po point in time. So it, it, it makes it makes it, it was clear to me that they were talking papers. There was a PR campaign. Uh, we now know through some some of the documentation we've all received that Chadwick uh, Weber has a contract, the PR contract for mm -hmm. CDC, Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, Jack Leslie, who I went to Georgetown with. And Jack, I hope you're listening because I loved you in Georgetown. But I said, now that I know that you're involved with this, we're chairman of the board for 20 years. I mean, I, I got questions about integrity at this point in time because the message was always the same. Nothing but vaccinations. When in yeah. fact, that caused a lot of trouble. For, it killed people. I mean, that's, that's the problem. It killed people not being able to give them ivermectin in the hospital. Christine, can I say one thing about one thing you just covered and, and, and Merrill also, but this is really important to understand. You're talking that horse dewormer, that was a, that was a completely organized PR yes. campaign and it was yes. synchronously launched and it was launched by what Merrill said. When they saw that prescriptions for ivermectin hit 88,000 in middle of August of 2021, that's when they knew it was go time. They had everything ready. And the horse dewormer campaign that you heard all over the media and news, it's not an accident that the FDA also used a horse in their tweet, right? So right. they knew they wanted to rebrand ivermectin as a horse dewormer, not as a human drug. I mean, this is very clever, right? So what happened is, this is a sequence of events. The data comes out showing skyrocketing use of ivermectin amongst the nation's providers against that late Delta wave in the summer of 2021. Pharma gets spooked. They know that the more that we use it, the more people realize that it works, more people will want it, and then there's going to be a groundswell. Yeah. So then they engage the CDC to put out that ridiculous memo. That's August 26th. I mean, I have the timeline of all of this. CDC jumps in, FDA tweets. Then you see what I call a two by four campaign. So propaganda, right? Narratives, um, two by four means um, two weeks, four different channels. And you saw Horse Dewormer, probably 20 different channels, late night talk show host, every news broadcaster, every time Horse Dewormer, Horse Dewormer. And so you were just absolutely drowning every, you know, the late night show host, they're making jokes after jokes every day about horse dewormers and associating with the unvaccinated and the uncredible and the conspiracy theorists and tinfoil hat wearing. I mean, they would not stop. 
And then for me, one of the huge ones, and this was really impressive if you look at it from a malevolent PR campaign, but that Rolling Stone article, right, with the headline that said, um, gunshot wound victims um, could not be seen in the emergency room. were waiting online because the emergency room was full of ivermectin overdoses. And a completely absurd headline. But boy, did that hit clickbait. I mean, they, they pay money for these campaigns. They know how to get things to go viral. And that went across the world, that headline. Well, going, and- back, going back to the case, one of the people in this case that uh, Isaac Belfer is involved with, I'm going to use his name as much as I possibly can, but one of the people they wanted to depose was the Surgeon General of the United States. And they went back to court and the judge said, no, you just one of the, I mean, they, they went back and said, we'd want to interview some of these people. No, I'm sorry, it's not in this case. It's in another case. It's in the Fauci case. Uh, it's the Louisiana, Texas case, uh, Louisiana, Missouri case going after Fauci. They, they said that, you know, we want to interview the Surgeon General. And what's interesting about this is in June 2021, this is before they got to that August episode where everything went crazy with ivermectin. June 2021, the Surgeon General hosts a, a, a press conference, holds up a PR campaign, and it's, it includes disinformation going after people. And in that other case, they wanted to depose them. And the courts just recently ruled that, no, you cannot depose the Surgeon General of the United States. Somebody needs to depose the Surgeon General of the United States and say to him, because there's no there's no bureaucrat that wrote that PR um, package that he held up at that press conference. When I looked at it, when I had PR experts look at it, they said to me, absolutely not. This was done by professionals. And we did not find out until recently that Chadwick Weber, in fact, uh, now ha- has had the, the, uh, you know, the contract for CDC, Moderna and Pfizer. I think it's very important for people to take a look at what's outside. Yes, that is, that is the booklet. That came out, I think the, the, the uh, I know it was June 2021. I think it was June 21st, 2021. But that's very important in terms of building this this uh, timeline for all the lawyers that are involved. Okay, Merle, uh, we're running out of time here. What is it that you want people to, to understand right now about ivermectin? It works. It's cheap. Um, I'm frightened that given the fact that the government and industry have gone to such lengths to keep it from us, I fear that maybe the product that's out there may not be as high quality as it used to be. And that may be the reason why we're not getting the wonderful effectiveness that we saw at the beginning. And so I'm, I'm concerned about that. Um, be aware that the world's second largest manufacturer of the active pharmaceutical ingredient, hydroxychloroquine, exploded in December of 2020. Um, So anyway, people may just need more of the drug than they used to need, but I'm not sure what's going on. And I haven't seen that anyone's analyzed the product to to tell us whether it is full strength and it is the same product it used to be. Um, I would also say that Janet Woodcock, who became the acting director of FDA, congratulated the PR person within FDA who sent the tweet. And that was apparently the tweet that more people have seen from the FDA than any other tweet ever. So it was very effective. Um, I guess I also want to say that you can't separate industry from the government anymore. So that's a problem. That's one definition of fascism. And finally, the government acknowledged that by October of last year, a year ago, it it had already allocated four and a half trillion dollars on the COVID response. And what that means is that basically there was enough money to bribe everybody. The hospitals weren't seeing regular patients. In fact, hospitals are losing money. Cleveland Clinic announced it lost a billion dollars in the first half of the year, this year. And so the whole medical system is relying on government handouts and most likely buried in the fine print somewhere is a requirement that all of them, you know, go after misinformation and disinformation, even though the government is forbidden from doing that because of the First Amendment. So there are a lot of there are a lot of legal issues 
in my case, the board that went after me for misinformation and had like 20 different charges against me for misinformation, when it came time for the hearing, they dropped all of them. They realized they can't support it because a government is not allowed to censor us. Right. So uh, anyway, I love to talk to Pierre more about this because I only recently learned that basically all the doctors who are presenting an alternative story about the pandemic and alternative treatment strategies, all of them are being, all that I've spoken with um, are being investigated by their boards. And so- And we're going to get, I can tell you right now. But it's a lot. So now we all all have to get together and form an alliance and share information. And I'm, I'm working on putting down on paper all the information I have. So Pierre, let's uh, elaborate. We will help you on that, Merle, because for for the information we have as journalists, I think that the state boards and the federal boards and these crazy governors who appoint these people to these state boards, medical boards, uh, it should be a full-blown investigation. And I think there should be a criminal investigation on this because they were used by the government to go after doctors who were practicing good medicine. Pierre, you have the last word. Yeah, you know, my last thoughts on ivermectin, to be honest, is that this is not about ivermectin. This is at its basic level. This is about a decades long attack on all repurposed drugs. You know, the use of repurposed or generic off patent drugs is the absolute Achilles heel to the entire pharmaceutical industry. They've devised tactics over decades to really attack doctors with alternative approaches, anything that can't make money or that is not part of their narrative. Um, they've been destroying doctors and practices forever. They try to suppress evidence of more natural therapies, um, you know, all, all sorts of things that they don't teach you in medical school that I'm learning about now because I look at the history of these attacks. And so ivermectin is just the latest. And I will tell you, and Merrill knows this, the war on ivermectin was a repeat of the war of hydroxychloroquine of 2020. I mean, they used very similar tactics. In fact, with hydroxychloroquine, even more sinister tactics. Um but this is what they do. You, they, they cannot have repurposed medicines that don't afford obscene profits. And so at a minimum, that's what, what this is about. But there are also other levels of influence and other objectives that they've uh, you know, capital, capitalized upon this emergency, this supposed emergency, which is just never ending. I've never been in such a long emergency as we are now. Um, but yeah, and, and so what my hopes really, you know, I'm writing a book about this, is that I I think people need to look at ivermectin as a case study to understand things like the control of our health systems, the things that we're allowed to use to treat disease, and really about the immense consolidation of the media and the journals. And the last thing I want to say is that this entire propaganda campaign, the entire campaign against ivermectin is founded on one thing, and that's the behavior of the high-impact medical journals. Without the collusion of the high-impact journals, which rejected all positive studies and only published the fraudulent counterfeit studies, without that, you could never have everything that the others did. You can't have the propaganda campaign. You can't have the agencies making these edicts. Um, It's really at the level of high-impact journals. And that has been well-described over decades, that pharma controls those journals. And so that's the, those are the things that I've learned in this unfortunate war on ivermectin for which I was given a front seat and and a master class in, in malevolence. So let me ask you this. How many of those ivermectin false studies were published in Lancet? So Lancet doesn't have one, but the, the five highest journals, uh, highest impact journals are New England Journal of Medicine, the British Medical Journal, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, um, the Lancet, and Annals of Internal Medicine. But the first three, New England Journal, JAMA, and BMJ, all have published negative editorials and or the counterfeit studies. And JAMA's at the top. They've already published two or three. New England Journal published the most fraudulent. And then the last thing I should mention is that, you know, the NIH, when COVID broke out, they have immense amount of fundings to fund research, especially into therapeutics. And, you know, so they have these rounds of funding for all these research proposals. NIH one. I mean, it's called active as their funding program. So active one, two, three. We're now on the sixth round. Not one of the first five rounds included any money to study an available repurposed drug. It was all pharma concoctions. Finally, I think under political pressure, they felt they had to study ivermectin. 
And the study that they did is the most fraudulent. It's the most demonstrably fraudulent. We have the evidence. It's right in the paper. And um, it just doesn't end. But th this this is the pharmaceutical industry at work. They have all of these levers. They have, <laughs> they have the researchers that they can influence to write whatever they want to write, to conduct any trial that they want to do. They, they know how to fund these trials and design these trials. And and that's why I want people to know that that really um, you can't trust the science in the high impact journals because the only thing that is, that is allowed to appear in those journals is what pharma wants to appear in those journals. If there's something they don't want in there, it will not get in there. And unfortunately, it's those high impact journals that drive all the headlines. And that's the shame because that's not where the science is anymore. And I should just add as a journalist that I've heard from many of my friends still at the legacy media at the networks here in the United States and the major newspapers, that whenever um, they are, some of us talk together still. Uh, and when I say to them, why don't you take a look at this? They will come back and say, but it says this in, 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 a, in a study. So exactly what you're saying, Pierre, it is effective to continue the disinformation with the legacy media. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, wait, Go can ahead. I, Go ahead, one Merle. more. Lancet, okay. Lancet ran um, a piece uh, dissing people who questioned the origin of COVID, that it might have come from a lab. Oh, back in February, March of 2020. Then before Lancet that, February 2020. Yep. Completely fabricated paper that anybody should have known. I knew as soon as I looked at it, it was fabricated. I mm -hmm. put it in my blog the same day it came out. Um, in on May 22nd of 2020, claiming that hydroxychloroquine was killing people in hospitals when it was used for COVID. And um, then the Lancet did it supposedly its own group, created its own group to study the origin of COVID and everything else about COVID. They put Jeffrey Sachs in charge. Um, they put Peter Daszak in charge of the COVID origins section. Right. Um, right, and, you know, right. and then again, shame, shame on, shame on false nonsense that. supporting globalist agendas on climate and on everything else under the rubric of the Lancet COVID, you know, commission. So I would say the Lancet is is as deep as it gets into the uh, dirty, dirty water. Would love to have you guys back next week to talk about the Lancet Commission, which is now mm. uh, sending recommendations to WHO and the pandemic and the Bali Agreement, if you guys are, would agree to that. But in the meantime, we've got to go. So, Merle, how do people find you? Um, MerleNass.substack.com. Pierre, how do, Pierre they, how do they find you personally and also for FLCCC? Um, so I'm at pierrecorey.substack.com. My last name is K-O-R-Y. And then FLCCC is FLCCC.net. Um, and just to put in a little plug, Christine. Absolutely. On, on this issue of the WHO and Andy Hill and Andy Owen, um, the work of Phil Harper and Alexandra Marinos, which um, Merrill cited, I, I wrote a really comprehensive post in, using and citing all of their work, as well as my own personal uh, knowledge of everything that occurred. And I think that's really the definitive account um, of exactly what the corruption that was pulled off at the WHO level and UNIDID. So we're going to, we're going to uh, open up uh, a ivermectin American conversations, ivermectin or just an ivermectin file. And we're going to add up all, all add up all your sub stacks to a piece that we're going to go uh, into just on this, because people need to understand the, how valuable this case is that uh, Paul Merrick and his colleagues have brought against the HHS and everybody else because uh, I, I think it's unnerving, but almost humorous, uh, but also demonstrates the arrogance of uh, Isaac Belfort, who represent, who's you know a DOJ lawyer representing the FDA in this case, to get up there and say, "Oh no, it didn't mean anything. It was just conversational. It wasn't mandatory when it affected seven billion people across the globe." Shame on these people, but people but people need to be held accountable. Thank you very much for, uh, we appreciate you guys joining us today and would love to do this just on those topics next week if you're available. Sounds good, Christine. See you then. Okay. Thank Bye you. Now. Bye, Meryl. Bye-bye.